small voice. Our focus is on a very godly man, a man whose nature has been likened much like ours, or we having a nature much like him. We discover even in text today that he considers himself zealous for the Lord. He has a zeal for the things of God that consume him. Prophecy would speak concerning that with regard to the heart of Jesus for the house of the Lord. This man has come from an extraordinary battlefield victory. And it would seem that we as believers ought to say, yeah, from victory to victory. But why is it then that there also seems to be equally, if not perhaps even more abundantly, from victory to misery? We love the victories. We love what it obviously feels like to be a champion. But it's difficult to feel the scourge of an enemy. It's difficult to feel the betrayal of friends and of family. These can be spiritual battlefields as well. There are a variety of them in social strata, in civil organizations, in political venues. We want our team to win. Can't we just have our team win? And remember, for every team that wins, there is a team that legitimately thought that they should win. And they wonder why they didn't. And they question the season in which, in that, they feel defeated. We go through these cycles, don't we? My stomach can kind of turn when I think of how I wish the world turned my way and not so precariously in the manner by which others seem to have control over it. But I know this, as the scriptures will reveal as well, Elijah will have an encounter with God in which in that determined destiny, to conference with the Lord, he must understand God on terms that realign his heart, his zeal. And one of the things about being zealous for God is that others may not be. And we feel a vacancy in that because we ask ourselves, where's my team? What's going on here? In the close of last week's teaching, just a verse above chapter 19, then the hand of the Lord came upon Elijah, and he girded up his loins and ran ahead of Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. And so we would liken this in today's 
culture of being enamored with superheroes, he would have been the Flash. He beat Ahab, who was in a chariot. He was headed towards the banqueting house of his wife Jezebel. The Lord empowered this man of God for one final look in the eyeballs of Ahab, who had seen the extraordinary demonstration of God in a judgment from heaven in favor of Elijah and the call for Israel to repent. And it is obvious that in this supernatural empowerment to propel this great prophet to beat him to his residence, it was to say, tell her what you saw. Tell her what you've heard. Tell her to repent. The some 400 prophets of Baal had been executed in a judgment that as well was ordered by God and performed through Elijah. And it is at this time we're in demonstrating such a strength in the things of obedience and honor for the Lord that he succumbs to the threat of man, in this case, a woman. Her reputation was exceedingly broad, and it was one that provoked terror in the hearts of men and communities. Hard for me to understand how one could do that. However, on the global scene, we can see that with power and the potential to harm people in power, we have things these days which can ravage both communities and homes, terrible weapons of warfare, and the world is screaming at each other saying, if you take one more step, this is what we have in store for you. And so however you want to look at what would be the vindictive and sinister plots of one who controls people with evil, that's who this king has been married to. And this is all we hear of what it was he said. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. Also how he had executed all the prophets with the sword. All that he had done and that he executed the vile prophets of Baal, having led Israel astray in the worship of Baal and rather that it, it provoking repentance in her and rather than him coming up with other convincing language such as I saw with my own eyes the power of God. I saw our men rebuked by God, mocked by Elijah. I saw on our battlefield which should have been ours loss, humiliation. 
And God is coming for us, for your house. He's going to come and upset your dinner party, your dessert fair right now. But his emphasis seems to be, oh yeah, and this is what he did to our guys, our good iron warriors. She moves into a venting rage, and this is what she says. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah. Messengers get used a lot in those days. And I wonder if this messenger may have been somewhat not too happy for that message to be delivered, because probably this messenger had heard of the vanquishing of 450 false prophets. But Jezebel, in this message, says to Elijah, so let the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. You have 24 hours, Elijah. You're on notice. You're a dead man. Now, whatever you may think in your confidence concerning God protecting you, which is right that we do have that, if your life has ever been threatened, it does something to your heart and to your mind. If you've ever been threatened at all, it certainly challenges your spirituality to the core. Twice in ministry, I have been threatened with my life. And one against my family. And it is a battlefield of the mind to keep composed, to stay confident, to be one that maintains faculty and focus. It ravages you. So twice. Both of them came to naught, but I didn't know it until time had passed, until I had heard what had happened to them that was the evidence that helped defeat my fear my sense of loss, and whether or not I wanted to continue in the manner by which I had been serving the Lord. These are the things that the enemy takes advantage of. Satan is wily. And if he can provoke fear in God's people that they will not continue on in the manner by which they're walking in integrity, and zeal, then he gains what? He gains another line of scrimmage. He gains inevitably, for those of us in the football season, yardage to the goal of defeating the Christians. So that was a real-life experience, two occasions, two different locations, and it was difficult for me. The fear that my life has been threatened, the fear that my family has been threatened, mocking me, 
that it would happen. And I would need to be looking over my shoulder. I would not be confident in the night shadows that I, at one point in time, was very comfortable, familiar to walk in. And so this very likely, if you can grab a hold of that, think about it, is what right now is an issue with Elijah. He hears the news. He says he's got 24 hours to live. So the messenger has brought to him. And it says that when he saw that, that's very likely the note that had been written, the dead or to be dead warrant posted on trees in the neighboring communities. He arose, ran for his life and went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah and left his servant there. So he's made basically a marathon run supernaturally to look the king in the eyes that, that king transfers correct information from God. Here's the threat and takes off. And this would indicate he does so out of fear. He goes to Beersheba, which is historic for him, actually all of Israel. It's historic because Abraham would have made an Abrahamic accord. You've heard that name contemporarily. But he would have made an accord or peace terms with Abimelech, who was king or pharaoh of Egypt at his time. When Abimelech had assessed that God was with Abraham and it was scaring him, he wanted to have terms of peace that Abraham would not turn against him. And it is interesting that back then the picture was that Nations that saw the work of God in Israel feared Israel and wanted to have terms that would endear them in some political interest for the purpose of preserving their culture. Israel was noted that as God led them, enemies were vanquished off of the face of the known earth at that time. And God was making a statement concerning unrighteousness and wickedness. There's no apologies from God for that. Because in every one of those circumstances, there had been time, notification, that if they turned, repented, submitted to him, he would be merciful. That was always God's intention, was to turn the heart of those who were wickedly averse to him and to provoke true spirituality connecting with the God of Israel. So he goes to Beersheba where history had been written before him. And following Abraham, we also know that Isaac, taking on the mantle of his father's leadership, would dig some like seven wells within this area. It was property that basically his father had secured to the digging of wells. When Abraham had passed on, these wells had become uh, 
areas in which enemies now rising up buried them, even to the point of frustrating Isaac. And so this turn of events right now leads him historically back to a time in which even Abraham himself was challenged. Even Isaac, the son of Abraham, was challenged in his inheritance. It's why one of the things that we do is we go back historically. We go back scripturally. In order to move us forward, continuing in the promises of God, we come back to the place where God did business with faithful men who had encountered as well threats against them, chicanery, things that, that for them they would say, I've been zealous for God. My father was zealous for God. Why now? Why at all? And so... As he goes back here, we can see that fundamentally he's exhausted, which is what living under threat does. He goes there, and it says, A day's journey into the wilderness, and came and sat down under a broom tree, and he prayed that he might die, and said, It is enough. Now, Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. Well, this wasn't about being better than his father's. This was about our great prophet Elijah being exactly what God had called him to do. One of the things the enemy does is taunts us for not being as good as the others or being just like they. We get it on two accounts. We're not good enough or you know what? That's true. I'm just like they were. Inconsistent. Insincere. Problems with my mouth. Problems in obedience. Yeah. And therefore, at times, it heaps upon us the things that are actually quite contrary to what the Lord is doing, and guess what? In spite of us. The Lord doesn't do things to spite us. In spite of us, he shows himself strong. And in this particular area right now, this is the conversation that Elijah is having. Much like you and I might converse to the Lord in a time of frustration, we just let it out. We make those comparisons that put ourselves down or that strip us from what we know factually God has done on behalf of us and in using us. And so as he lays down to sleep, and it is probably the sleep of both exhaustion and depression, both of them can have the same result. The eyelids close and we drift off into sleepy land. We want to bury ourselves in a fluffy cloud of nothingness to wake up to something better than what we are tired of. And so he sleeps, this is verse 5, under this broom tree and suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. 
this is a supernatural visitation. We don't know who this angel was. We don't have indication that it is per se the angel of the Lord, but a ministering angel indeed for Elijah personally. It says he looked, and there by his head was a cake baked on coals or rendered hot stones and a jar of water. So we ate and drank and lay down again. Verse 7, And the angel of the Lord came back the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for you. The ministry of seeking refuge in a time of being a refugee is extraordinary. We want to be in a different position, but here we are. And as he has awakened by the touch of this angel in the provision of food and water, the Lord is reminding him, do you remember when you started off your ministry? Do you remember that in the power by which you prophesied and the heavens shut up and there was no rain, I took you and secured you by a brook of waters and fed you by raven. Guess what? You've been upgraded. Now you get a jar of water and you get baked bread. It's not coming from a crow's beak. It's coming by an angel's hand. It's an upgrade. Do we see the upgrades that God does when we feel the downgrades that come with what we're going through? Do you realize that that's important to see the upgrades? He moves from a brook that inevitably dried up, birds that are bombing him with bread. <laughs> hmm. Wonder what they were eating before they grabbed this piece. They were dirty birds back then. He had to learn how to submit to the provision of God by whatever means the Lord chose to use. And now he awakens by an angel to find fresh baked bread by his head. Didn't have to get up and go get it. And water, an upgrade for one who felt personally downgraded and threatened, acknowledging this. Second time awakened, same provision. The angel of the Lord came back this second time, touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for you. He's being given a directive right now on this feeding, and it indicates that though he was running from Jezebel for fear of his life, he now must make a pilgrimage for God, God's going to turn what at one time we would might we might say cowardice, fear, into a spiritual journey, a pilgrimage. And he's going to direct him. And so he arose and ate and drank, and he went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights as far as Horeb, the mountain of God. So where he was supernaturally turned into the flash to give the message to 
this evil king, where in a flash and fear he runs from Jezebel. He is now told that he is going on a trip to Mount Horeb. This as well has been equated as Mount Sinai. The Lord's taken him from Beersheba, where Abraham and Isaac foundationally began establishing, if you would, their place in the world, their statement concerning God, the inheritance that the Lord had given them. And now he's moving some 200 plus miles south to the place where Moses who would have been considered a someone who became a nobody, who became a someone as a servant of God, as one who would deliver the law of God from the mount of God. And though the journey could be accomplished in some 12 plus days with very hard walking, hard walking, There's this 40-day experience in which there seems to be a spiritual requirement of him to connect in that extra time. Moses was one who would spend 40 days and 40 nights in the presence of God to receive the commandments of the Lord. There was rain for 40 days and 40 nights that Noah would have endured. Though he had provision on the boat, he also had to weather a storm, wondering, what have I gotten myself into? Well, you got yourself into an ark, Noah, with your family. And you got stuff to be talking over with me and chores to do that are highly functional and necessary for ultimately replenishing this earth once this baby lands and once that door opens. There's stuff to do. All of these things may have been something that Elijah would have said, I know the stories. I know those men. I know that God knows me. And so rather than per se resist, he enters into this time, which we would say is supernatural, to go without food and water, and only in that which has been served him is supernatural. Because God is bringing revival to him, and he's going to do that by asking a question that's important for him to be able to answer. And it's going to take time for that information to translate from his mind to his heart and to recommit himself because he basically said, I'm not on the team anymore. I'm through. Take me out. Kill me. I don't want to live any longer. If she's going to, I'd rather have you do it, Lord. And there he went into a cave. Obviously, he has arrived. And he spent the night in that place. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? It's an interesting question, isn't it? Most of God's questions are interesting. 
But the question is something that is the requirement of all of us as well. What are you doing here? Church, what are you doing here? Well, I'll tell you that we're doing the best we can with what it is in the provision that God has made for us, a house of prayer, a place of worship, a time in which we commit our values and our friendships, our spiritual vulnerabilities to one another. So that's a great question, and it's one that as we leave here, we ought to be able to say, I checked that off. But there are some people that come to church, and it's really simply just a thing to do, just a place to sit. It's just an observation to make, as opposed to an inward look from God to our hearts. When you see worship, as authentically as I think that we do it with great sincerity, and hands go up, it doesn't mean you're not worshiping if you don't have hands go up. Or people stand doesn't mean that if you don't stand, you're not worshiping God. I took time out during several songs just to sit because the majority of what I do is stand. And you know what? It felt really awesome to sit. And I was as connected with those songs while at the same time appreciating those who were standing in reverence to the Lord, just as connected. But I know this, that if that question were asked of me, it would be, Lord, I'm sitting at your feet. Lord, I'm here because this is well suited for who I am and who I need to be ever more made into a man of God, a purposed person who finishes a course that is hard challenges me as I feel the weight of others challenged in their walk. Elijah, what are you doing here? What are you doing here, Elijah? And so he said, and this is true, this is how he feels. I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets. With the sword, I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. He's only got some of the details accurate. What he feels like, how he's declared himself to be zealous, is true. What he forgot is that behind him are still 100 prophets who are hiding in a cave, waiting for the word of the Lord to them. Time to go, Lord. Ready to go? What's our next mission? They were being hidden, securely kept from, at that time, an attempt by Ahab to snuff them out. Jezebel probably herself going, did we take care of those guys? Where are they? Anybody know where they are? Not realizing that they were hid by, obviously, Ahab's governor. People behind the scenes working on behalf of the remnant that are wanting to stay in the mix. So he forgot about them. But the other thing that we'll find out, he's completely unaware of whom God has still reserved. Do you realize that no matter what you feel like, you cannot see those whom God has reserved that are just like you?
only they might be even better suited. But they have not abandoned God. They've not left the Lord. They're ready when they're called. God's always got a remnant that you cannot see that are doing the very same thing that your zeal for God has given you, not condemnation, but a conviction from him that you're on course, you're doing well. The world condemns. God gives beautiful conviction. Beautiful conviction for Elijah right now. Ah, I've been zealous. Verse 11, then he said, go out. This is God. Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind tore into the mountain, broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still, small voice. All of those in what they would represent to us in the natural realm would be a noise, certainly to contend with, to feel. You've heard the roar of a fire. You've been in gale force winds before. Some of us have endured light earthquakes, but we've seen the consequence of earthquakes, the rumbling. We've seen evidence of its destructive power. And God's saying, in all of those things that could convince you of my presence, this is how I choose to reveal myself to you. Can you hear my voice? Can you tune out the noise of the culture, of politics, Can you tune out the noise of your own arguments against who you are to listen and to listen intently and to honor me obediently? It's a still small voice. God could yell at you if you wanted to, and sometimes he'll bring people along to give you that if that's what you need. I'd prefer to conference with God and his still small voice. And so it was, notice this verse 13, when Elijah heard it, that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. And suddenly a voice came to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? It seems that there may be two distinct tones being set here, but the question is the same. And Elijah is going to give the same answer with regard to how he feels about his situation. I've been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts because of the children of Israel I have forsaken, who have forsaken your covenant and torn down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left and they seek to take my life. And then the Lord said to him, go, return your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, anoint Hazael as king over Syria. Also, you shall anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, as king over Israel, 
and Elijah, the son of Shaphat, of Abel, Meholah, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. It shall be that whoever escapes the sword of Heziel, Jehu will kill. And whoever escapes the sword of Jehu, Elisha will kill. Yet I have reserved, notice this as conclusion, 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. I've reserved the reserves. You're not alone, but you've got things to do now. And we're because of a great victory, but a woman who became a grave threat to you, you allowed yourself to be overwhelmed. I'm overwhelming you now with the evidence that you need. I've taken care of you. I've upgraded you. She downgraded you. I've upgraded you. The people may sneer at you, but you've also got a bunch of them were very impressed with who I am because of what it was I did through you at Mark Carmel. There are people who are still questioning whether they want to be a part of Baal worship because of that great victory. And so you are to move in victory now, and you're to line things up that actually will proceed in lineage to establish a godly king. They're not going to see it for two other kings, but the Lord has already marked the termination of Ahab. He has already marked the termination of Jezebel. He has already marked a prophet in the future that Elijah may be aware of, but he now will commission to come alongside of. We already looked that chronologically a 15-year difference between the two. And so right now there very likely is about 17 years in which when he runs into, and that'll happen in the next teaching, Elisha, Elisha will learn concerning the things of God through Elijah, having to make choices himself, whether it's family that he remain with or whether it is this prophet that he come alongside of and serve, learning of the things of God and ultimately inheriting the mantle of the Lord. After the noise, the still small voice today, there's going to be noise. Wherever it is we go, there's going to be noise. Can we have that discipline to say, but if it's a voice that's contrary to the mission that I'm on, if it deviates and pulls me from the course of faith and the influence that I have, then it is no. I will respite with the Lord. I will allow him to interrogate me for my motives. If my answer be the same, then it may mean that he is convinced that my mission is still valid. There may be that. Why is God always questioning me? It may be that he wants to hear your heart. Is your mission still valid based on you speaking to him the very same things? Or are you one that a chapter ago that Elijah called out, how long will you vacillate? How long will you waver between two opinions? If you're that unsure-footed, if you're that weak in heart, 
you need to garnish the grace of God and to be empowered by him to be strengthened in the things yet remaining to be done. That was the challenge that Elijah gave to his public. But somehow even where he gave that challenge, his actions showed some vacillation and God had to hear it from him. What are you doing here? Okay, I understand your convictions. What are you doing here? Okay, you've reiterated your convictions. Now, I've got something for you to do. And you will not find me in the things that culture is requiring of you. Show us God again. You think that's enough to convince us? Fire from heaven? Ooh. So you took out some priests with your sword. You're a good swordsman. We want to see you do other stuff. But God wants us to be convinced in the time of our service that our confidence displaces fear. And the legacy that we write in the lives of others whom we do not know is because of what we chose to do against all odds, but always believing the favor of God was the deciding factor in the victory. And if misery is what I face on the next moment, I understand that's for God as well to walk me through.